0: Today, we have Hussein al-Biati. Hussein was born in Iraq and fled with his family to survive. At just five years old, his world was thrown into disarray as he was forced into a refugee camp. His childhood was stripped away from him, but he has grown into a phenomenal artist and person taking after his father. Hussein, welcome. Yeah, so you're writing a book, huh? Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, I'm writing a book. It's a big story. But yeah, I've finally come to the point where writing a book was necessary to review life in itself, and then I didn't realize it was going to be so therapeutic. I'm a couple weeks away from having some beta readers, so I'm very excited about that. It was yesterday that I truly felt like I ended the book.
0: Let's take it back to the beginning.
2: I'll go back to 85 to 90. I was born in Iraq. That time frame was a little crazy because we were still at war with Iran. Saddam is in power dictator ruling the world, or at least our world. (laughs) But the 80s were weird, because from the perspective of the people that lived in Iraq, though we were going through war, we were getting a lot of love from America, because they wanted Saddam to take down the Iran situation, you know, he couldn't do it, obviously, and then uh, just became even more evil. And then in 1990, the whole situation with the Kuwait The Gulf War started to kind of break out. America was like, you're tripping, now you've lost it. That's when America goes in and the whole war breaks out, the Gulf War. We're in the middle of all this. You know, the people, people are always like bystanders when these dictators just do shit. It's crazy how one person's decision is the ultimate decision. You know, I'm young, I'm five years old. I don't know the world at all. I just know some of my friends and hanging out and... (laughs) next thing you know we're huddled in the corner of our my mom's bedroom praying to not die because we were getting bombed left and right left and right i mean i i mean at that point i mean my mom was praying like death prayers like we're going to die this is it we're gonna huddle here and this is what's gonna happen that was like at the very core beginning of my memory kicking in right because There was a point where I'm like looking out the door and just chaos is raining outside. Like people running everywhere, you hear gunshots, you hear nothing but plumes of smoke because there's oil reserves everywhere. You know, at five, six years old, how do you make sense of what's happening? You don't. I just remember like this constant shaking and rattling of our house. And then finally my brothers came home like the next day and then the bombing continued. And that's when... My dad was like, well, there's nowhere to go. All the bridges are down. It's either we die here or we somehow survive. While this was happening, my oldest brother was staying with my grandma, who's like three or four blocks away. At this time, he was with her at her house. And because at this point, a rebellion was starting to build up, say, okay, let's just get rid of Saddam. There's always been this rebellious sort of like voice, but super quiet, of course. My uncles were a part of that should just started to unravel. So Saddam's armies were all busy trying to deal with this war in Kuwait. And the rebellion was like, this is our moment. We gotta go take over Baghdad and take over the cities. And so how you take over a city is you you take out where they put the ammo and the weaponry, like the, the army stations basically were abandoned. So it was like a free for all. My brother was actually, he was gonna go to school for acting in Baghdad so theater was a big deal in our household you know while this was happening we're just at the house anticipating death and not knowing what the hell's happening every now and then an uncle would stop by knock on the door pop in sort of give us some news and run the fuck out like that's all i remember a day later my brother shows up so we were huddled we're like this is it we're done he shows up grandma comes And supposedly that night was supposed to like end the war. I remember it very, very vaguely, but when my brothers describe it, it was a horrid night from hell, you know, just bombing everywhere. We literally thought we were gonna die. When we actually left our house that morning, we didn't die, luckily, by some miracle. My dad, he also managed the city's general asphalt company, basically, that was run by the city. So he managed that. And so what he did is he went and took a bunch of men out to this factory, basically, and brought all the trucks and emptied everything out and just loaded people from the neighborhood. And we're like, we're leaving. We're going to go out to the outskirts of this salt mine. I remember waking up on this big, like, gravel trucks. Just, you know, everything's rattling. And I wake up and I'm like, what the fuck's going on? And I remember just peeking over and it was just. Pure desert, you know, it's just all you see is pure desert. we finally pulled up to this area where there were some people there that ran away from this madness. So we ended up being there for about three days. I remember, like, the United Nations, like, literally dropping bags of rice and bags of food and stuff. Like, that shit was crazy. After probably a week or so, the United Nations finally forced Saudi Arabia to let us into their border. Because Saddam was flying... Freaking jets, he started calling people in the South traitors. I lost a couple of uncles, lost a couple cousins in that whole situation. And again, I was young, so the fuck do I know. But my grandma was with us at one point, and then she ended up going back. So we ended up finally being allowed to go into the Saudi Arabian border. They basically gave us a tent for the family, go pitch it. Good luck. Food shows up every two days. And water shows up every other day, you know, or whatever. My brothers, luckily, man, this is the one thing I'm extremely grateful for. I had older brothers. They were in their mid to late teens. I was lucky because had they not been there, I don't know if my father would have been able to do it. You know, he had a terrible back and he had been injured from previous stuff. And we're in the middle of the desert. They then literally start to imprison us. They put up a giant fence all around this camp, and you can't leave, you can't go anywhere, there's a curfew, it becomes a prison. You know, it's not just a refugee camp, it's a fucking prison. And you can't, the amount of men that got beat to literally death by the soldiers that the Saudis put on us, you know, it was a very, very tough time, the first year, especially because we just had tents. And so what, me, what some of the people started doing after like a couple of months, we realized like, okay, we might be here for a couple of months, and we'll end up going back home. Well the borders are closed now, Saddam's back in power, and America peaced out. They got their oil with Kuwait, they're fine. And so we're all just like what happens now? <laughs> like what the fuck do we do? We're just sort of trapped. I mean, I remember my brothers and I like we they started making these mud bricks and built them up, essentially building huts. The desert is not forgiving. <laughs> And so for the next three and a half years or so, we just we lived in this hellhole called Ha refugee camp. Slowly, the immigration for other countries and stuff started to roll in. And our luck was just like, you know, every day, and I remember my brothers feeling this stuff, like every day, it's like being imprisoned for a crime you didn't commit. You know, lucky for me, I got bathed, I got fed. Sometimes it was just rotten food, so we wouldn't eat for like a couple of days. It was just something fucking ridiculous starts to happen. So about two years in, my father, what he starts to do is takes these torn up tents, takes pieces of them and starts to bring them back to our tent and starts to paint on them. So he just made some paint from the dirt and some whatever and literally just starts to paint. And then he convinces one of these soldiers, bring me some paint, paint supplies, some canvases and I'll hook you up like I got you and and bring some food with you or like bring that water container a little bit closer to our community because you know, like you're making us suffer. So he started like building these little relationships with these like young soldiers that are just there following orders, you know. So a year later, my dad's now churned half of our tent into like an art studio and he's in there painting away. He's reflecting on archiving the time, painting Saddam and his evil shit, or painting like a horse or some flowers, like truly, like one of the realest bouquet of flowers I've ever seen was like my dad painted it. I hadn't seen much at this point. I left when I was five. I don't know a whole lot of shit, and my memory sure is healing, serving me. So, this is how I'm getting introduced to the world is through my dad's art. We didn't have books, and they finally, inevitably, they built a school out of like portables and stuff like that. But even then, it was like learning basic math and reading writing but we were completely disconnected from the world and then our last year there they moved our camp they had all the men in these refugee camps there's a lot of men that came out so in this situation when all this stuff went down there was a lot of prisons that were broken open so imagine a lot of these prisoners were in this refugee camp too and all the bullshit they did in the community what the saudis did is they had the men come out and build these new structures that were basically rectangular modular homes that like basically allowed us to move there and then they gave us electricity that ran two hours a day each thing had an individual water container so they were basically building us a town saying you're stuck here buddy there's nothing we could do for you and then the united nations just supported us with food and water at that year hope was just bare minimum but what was happening was you know my father Kept like knowing that we were going to leave. Every time you talk to him, oh, Allah is good. He always takes care of us. In the Quran, it says Allah won't put an atom's worth of pressure on an ant. So you got this. We got this. And he just had this like, we're going to survive, like no matter what. And obviously, I'm sure he was fucking weak inside and desperate for something, but he obviously didn't want to show his kids that size. Fathers try to protect the innocence. And protect the hope because if you remove those then that's it man it's you in that desert he kept painting and kept meeting more and more people so he ends up meeting the guy that runs the refugee camp that guy rolls up with like six humvees and all kinds of shit rolls up to our now like compound we're like shit this is it this is where our dad gets hauled off because he's going to get killed because of this art that he's been doing these fools roll up bang on the door, they come in, and this guy comes in, super nice, wearing a suit, meeting my dad, Hey, just wanna come here and meet you, I've heard a bunch of great things about you, your art, I wanted to come see it for myself. We were just like, oh my God, this might be <laughs> our chance to get the fuck out of here. And so he commissions my father to do this painting that was like 12 feet wide and like eight feet tall. It's a huge canvas. And this guy has a family of like 15 or 16 people. Just a family picture that this guy wanted like in the middle of his house. But I was like, fuck, I'll go to your house and paint it. You know, like I'll I'll do whatever you want. I need to get out of here. I need you to help me get my, he's like, I'll paint for you, I'll be your servant. Just get my kids out of here. I remember him crying with this dude. And this guy really felt for my pops and and just felt for our situation. And so my dad was like, just come back in a month. It'll be ready. He ends up painting this remarkable painting. The guy comes back in about a month. I remember my dad like painting like his life depended on it. I think for me, I think back and it just brings back so much emotions because it's so important to lean into who the fuck you are in that moment in time. He was exhausted every day, and I had never seen anyone. At this point, I'm seven or eight years old. This is the last year we're there, quite literally the last six months, but we don't know that. So the guy comes through, picks up this painting, and it's just like freakishly blown away. He comes back the next few weeks, you know, and visits and stuff and has tea, and then one day he comes in, slides my dad some paperwork and goes, get ready, you're out of here in like three weeks. We had a immigration interview. The guy who's <laughs> from the United States doing this interview with us. Also fell in love with my pops because he heard all these stories. My dad takes his picture and his wife's picture, brings it back after this interview, paints him. We go back for a second interview, two weeks later, my dad comes through with a painting just as a thank you, as a gesture. The dude is just blown away and, and just like, where do you want to go? We're thinking about sending you to Florida, done. Portland, Oregon, that's nothing. Fills it all in. And there was a church in Florida that actually paid for all of our expenses to come there. It was like a long lifetime sort of repayment plan, but it was like $5 a month. That changed my life. About a month later, I found myself in a freaking spaceship called an airplane. I'd never seen a freaking airplane before. The amount of movies we've seen, I've seen like Rambo at this point, Terminator, and like some violent shit. (laughs) Right? like This is how I see America, like everybody drives a Ferrari, everybody's in a spaceship. People don't understand how people view America outside of America. They don't have a clue. Like, I thought I moved to heaven. I thought we died and woke up in heaven. Like I literally I was like, no way, this is my life. And we come to America in 1994. We'd already spent three and eight months in a fucking prison and then the real struggle starts. Like, all of that is not even a struggle. But now you have to survive living in America. New language, culture. Luckily, yes, your clothing, your shelter, your food and water are accessible. You have to go work for it now. You have to go earn money now, to where in the camps, everything was like donated. What my brothers were doing back then, you know, being the garbage man and shit, was just like a different world now. The American dream starts literally Cleaning bathrooms—that's what my brothers did. My pops, my mom, everybody was working something or learning English or riding the bus to do this or riding just riding the bus. My brothers got lost so many times. There there were so many times my brothers didn't come back home till like three in the morning. My mom thought they got kidnapped or like something crazy happened because she's like, "This is America!" Like she's thinking like, "This is what I've seen in movies: people get kidnapped, right?" And then once we sort of get into the society and really culture and realize you can't do this, you can do that. You start to figure it out.
0: Tell me about figuring it out.
2: First of all, my teachers used to whoop my ass (laughs) in these portables. I hated school with all of my might. My favorite class was art class and and he made us do shit, like make paper airplanes. It was just creative. And everything else though, I absolutely hated. So when we come to America, I have a teacher who looks like you, white lady, beautiful, smiling, blonde hair, blue eyes. I'm like, I am have it. I can't believe I'm here. This is so easy. It was tough to understand, but I'm like, I'm not going to get beat. I'm not scared of anybody. I'm not scared to go to school. I'm not scared of the other kids. The fear starts to be removed just from the sense of like what I felt. Now, was it difficult? Hell yeah, mean, I had to learn English. My little sister, poor thing, like Peter her pants because she didn't know how to ask for where the bathroom is. You know, like you're so uncomfortable. I mean, I'm sure you've been around people who are learning English. There's a thing in your brain that just says you're not good enough. Don't say that. You're going to be made fun of. And it happens almost automatically when you come here. I get put in Beaverton, Oregon. First of all, Portland, Oregon is one of the whitest cities in all of America. Second of all, Beaverton, Oregon is like the headquarters of Nike and it's predominantly white. I'm the only Arab kid, you know, and, and I didn't feel or understand racism until high school, really. And, and I didn't understand it. Like I knew it existed, but I didn't understand it, especially at a young age. You don't know what that shit is. You're just trying to survive. Growing up, for me personally, Then I went home and started learning English like freaking crazy. Power Rangers, Batman TV shows, MTV, freaking Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Like that was my life. I was like, oh my God, look at all these cartoons. As a kid who grew up looking up to my dad and drawing Mickey Mouse and doing all these things, you want to see that shit. You want to see com? I didn't have comic books. I didn't have anything like that. It was like the floodgates opened come fifth grade or so. I started learning English, having some friends, playing, all those good things. And there was an opportunity to, like, write a book. And I thought it was for the school. There was an author that came in and showed us how to draw. And he did, like, this children's books. And I was, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Like, this guy is showing me what I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to make books and cartoons. Like, you can draw for a living? What the fuck? So I was (laughs) blown. I was just blown away. And all the other students look bored as shit. How are you not living this up right now? You have no idea what is on the other side of this thing. And that's what I grew up with. I grew up with this sense of there's so much shit these kids have never seen, and, and I hope that they'll never see. But I saw it at such an early age that now every step I take, every class I take, everything I do, you know, I had this mounted pressure, of course, to be successful at it, to do things. But it was also like, I am going to take in as much as I possibly can. And so I had this opportunity with this author that came to write a book. And I honestly thought it was just like a school competition thing. So I was like super juiced. Come home, I tell my dad about it. So I whip up this book and I submit, I give it to my teacher like a, like a month and a half later or something when it was due. I was the only kid from the whole school that submitted the book for this competition. But it's like this national competition. So my teacher's like, what's this for? And I gave him the paper from the author and I filled it all out. And he's just like, Oh, you're trying to enter the competition?" He's like, Oh, you can just mail this out. You don't have to bring it back to the school. And I'm like, Oh, I thought it was for the school. He's like, no, but this is fucking amazing. He starts flipping through it. He's like, this is such a great book. He's like, it was about this little kid who gets lost at a basketball game and his dad goes through looking for them. And it was like a baby. It was, I was inspired by Rugrats. And so he submits it. And I long forget about it because we move. So we move, we move schools that summer. It shows up later in eighth grade. So my eighth grade teacher calls me up. She's like, hey, you got this package, open it up. I open it up. I was like, oh my God, it's my book, you know, like, and I haven't seen it in like what three years or whatever. So I pull it out and it comes out with like an award and like this whole letter. So I got an award for having a good book. Out of 200,000 submissions, I was top 100. I grew up wanting to be an architect. That's what I went and did in college. I went and did you know, all the high school stuff, which, man, you name it. You know, I went through the whole racism shit. I went through the 9-11. That was my sophomore year. From sophomore, junior, senior year. I was the fucking terrorist. I was the new black guy. You know, I was the sand nigger. I was called shit. I was in fights. My mom, people throwing shit at her as she walked by, like walking out in the street. I mean, it was bad. That's when it hit me that my kind is here, but it seems that every kind here hasn't had the best welcome. And it's sad because everyone that's come here has done something for this country, has done, has served it in some way, shape or form. Are there dumbasses from my culture and my faith and my, yeah, like, who doesn't have it? Like, name me one place on earth that doesn't have a moron in it. But I was labeled as that. But I didn't let it mess with me too much. I just kept going. I had some amazing teachers. I was doing all these cool, creative things throughout college, studying architecture, and I started hand painting t-shirts. And that's where I started getting into t-shirts and business and running a business and what that's like. My father and I sat down at one point. I was very young. And I remember telling him, I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be something for you, pops, because what you did allows me to do that. And he was like, you know, whatever you do, man, it's for you. You have this opportunity. But just remember, this opportunity is like sand. And if you don't hold it carefully in your hand and be smooth with it, you'll lose some of it. You'll lose yourself in it. The best part is I had somebody at least guiding me and helping me and protecting me. Not just him, really, my brothers, my siblings, my sister. I always try to, like, pay homage to them and give them lots of props. So I came up with this thing called Refugees to help give back to the local refugee and immigrant community. This started in 2016. It just grew from there. Um, We started making these t-shirts to represent positive messaging and all these good things and express ways to connect and spread awareness about the refugee crisis and and tell more of that story. And then now I'm talking to you, telling you the story, and that's how it's kind of been.
0: When you were talking about your father and his art, and getting out of the refugee camp from his art, it totally reminded me of the Holocaust and how if people had a talent and they got in with the Nazis, it could be their way out.
2: I'll be honest with you. I don't know, outside of Anne Frank and like outside the general stories that we've all heard about that time frame, the only person I kind of started relating my, after learning about Picasso and stuff was that's who I, started connecting my father to be like it was just like this person that used this severe time to do whatever he could to use his art or skill to help his family and I think you know anybody who's anybody would have done that, but it just so happened to be my father, and I got a fucking that was the lottery for me that was my ticket, man, but since he passed in two thousand and sixteen. So many things have changed and now super leaning into this, helping the refugee community and all these kids. I just feel like there's a purpose there that needs to be fulfilled. I appreciate this opportunity, but I also would love to meet your dad. And if anything, just send him my love and, and thank you, Pops, for taking care of our daughter. And, and we look up to you guys. So thank you for believing in us.
0: That was so beautiful. Thank you so much. Grandpa, what did you think?
1: Very interesting meeting with Hussein.
0: Isn't that a beautiful story about his dad?
1: It sure is. During the Depression, uh, Grandpa Bihar uh, became part of the Tammany Hall and was able to work for the Democratic Party, and that's the way he was able to survive during the Depression by being active and doing community service and helping the Democratic Party, and uh, that's how he was able to make a little bit of a living. Because business and everything had just crashed and gone out of business, being uh, very social and getting along with a lot of people, and where he spoke so many different languages, that's how your grandpa Bihar really got around, was by being social and getting along with all kinds of people. And the funny part is, his son Isaac was the same type of person, where he was just very quiet and very intellectual, and was able to get along. With all kinds of people, patience and understanding and getting along with a lot of people is the way you can sometimes overcome tremendous difficulties that could be going on in the world, almost like uh, we're living through some crazy times even today in the year 2020. Isn't it very interesting that just as a small child, the house is shaking, the bombs are blowing, there's gas in the street. There's no food, there's no water, there's no electricity, there's nothing. And yet without having the goodness of the UN and the Red Cross and certain organizations that drop water and enough supplies just so you have enough to survive, to hopefully fight another day and be able to still have an opportunity to do something with your life. And his father that had a talent, just as you mentioned, some Jews during World War II, Certain Jews that had a talent were preserved, whether it was arts or music or something to that effect, was their salvation of having a chance to survive with the talent that they were given. He used it the best that he could to try to see if he could give an opportunity to his family to be able to leave that wretched situation that they were in. A tremendous, gallant fellow to do everything in his power. To try, try to save his family.
0: The Better Call Daddy show is now proudly sponsored by Sadie Simper Designs. Listen, I had Sadie make some custom animated GIFs for this podcast, and they were fantastic. Animated GIFs are a great way to make Instagram stories more interesting, and they can also be used in place of your logo to make your emails more dynamic. Sadie creates custom branding. She doesn't just take a logo based off of nothing. She helps you take time to build your brand's identity, and she creates a brand suite that is truly tailored to you. Have you seen my Megawatt's Productions logo? She made that. Visit sadiesimperdesigns.com to see portfolio and brand packages. For 20% off your custom GIF or brand suite, email sadiesimperdesigns at gmail.com and use the subject line, Call Daddy! For more information on Hussein's book and business, go to BetterCallDaddy.com. Currently, there is a massive refugee crisis. People flee their homes to escape trauma and terror. Once they arrive at a border, they are then held in captivity for an uncertain amount of time where they are treated inhumanely. Children are separated from parents and they may never be rejoined again. This is the reality that we're living in. For more information, go to BetterCallDaddy.com now you can subscribe on apple podcasts google play spotify and tune in add better call daddy podcast on ig at Rena friedman watts on linkedin.com thanks for listening to the better call daddy show